Section 54 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 45. Louis Fourteenth, His Wars and His Reverses. Part 4. The reading of the Dutch proposals tore away every veil. Quote, the necessity of obtaining peace, whatever price it might cost, was felt so much the more. The king gave orders to Rouy to resume the conferences, demanding clear and precise explanations. Quote, if the worst comes to the worst, said he, I will give up Lille to the Hollanders, Strasbourg dismantled to the empire, and I will content myself with Naples without Sicily for my grandson. You will be astounded at the orders contained in this dispatch, so different from those that I have given you hitherto, and that I considered, as it was, too liberal, but I have always submitted to the divine will, and the evils with which he is pleased to afflict my kingdom do not permit me any longer to doubt of the sacrifice he requires me to make to him of all that might touch me most nearly. I waive, therefore, my glory. The Marquis of Torcy, Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, followed close after the dispatch. He had offered the king to go and treat personally with Heinsius. Quote, the grand pensionary appeared surprised when he heard that his majesty was sending one of his ministers to holland he had been placed at that post by the prince of orange who put entire confidence in him heinsius had not long before been sent to france to confer with louvois and in the discharge of that commission he had experienced the bad temper of a minister more accustomed to speak harshly to military officers than to treat with foreigners he had not forgotten that the minister had threatened to have him put in the bastille consummate master of affairs of which he had a long experience he was the soul of the league with Prince Eugène and the Duke of Marlborough. But the pensionary was not accused either of being so much in love with the importance given him by continuance of the war as to desire its prolongation or of any personally interested view. His externals were simple, there was no ostentation in his household. His address was cold without any sort of rudeness. His conversation was polished, he rarely grew warm in discussion." Torcy could not obtain anything from Heinsius any more than from Marlborough and Prince Eugène, who had both arrived at the Hague. The prince remained cold and stern. He had not forgotten the king's behavior towards his house. Quote, That's a splendid post in France, that of Colonel-General, said he one day. My father held it. At his death we hoped that my brother might get it. The king thought it better to give it to one of his natural sons. He is master, but all the same, is one not sorry sometimes to find oneself in a position to make slights repented of. Quote, Marlborough displayed courtesy, insisting upon seeing in the affairs of the coalition the finger of God, who had permitted eight nations to think and act like one man. The concessions extorted from France were no longer sufficient. M. de Torcy gave up Sicily, and then Naples. A demand was made for Alsace, and certain places in Dauphiny and Provence. Lastly, the Allies required that the conditions of peace should be carried out at short notice, during the two months' truce it was agreed to grant and that Louis XIV should forthwith put into the hands of the Hollanders three places by way of guarantee, in case Philip V should refuse to abdicate. This was to despoil himself prematurely and gratuitously, for it was impossible to execute the definitive treaty of peace at the time fixed. Quote, the king did not hesitate about the only course there was for him to take, not only for his own glory, but for the welfare of his kingdom, says Torcy. He recalled his envoys, and wrote to the governors of the provinces and towns, quote, Sir, the hope of an imminent peace was so generally diffused throughout my kingdom that I consider it due to the fidelity which my people have shown during the course of my reign to give them the consolation of informing them of the reasons which still prevent them from enjoying the repose I had intended to procure for them. I would, to restore it, have accepted conditions much opposed to the security of my frontier provinces, 
but the more readiness and desire I displayed to dissipate the suspicions which my enemies affect to retain of my power and my designs, the more did they multiply their pretensions, refusing to enter into any undertaking beyond putting a stop to all acts of hostility until the first of the month of August, reserving to themselves the liberty of then acting by way of arms if the King of Spain, my grandson, persisted in his resolution to defend the crown which God has given him. Such a suspension was more dangerous than war for my people, for it secured to the enemy more important advantages than they could hope for from their troops. As I place my trust in the protection of God, and hope that the purity of my intentions will bring down his blessing on my arms, I wish my people to know that they would enjoy peace if it had depended only on my will to procure them a boon which they reasonably desire, but which must be won by fresh efforts, since the immense conditions I would have granted are useless for the restoration of the public peace. Signed, Louis. End quote. In spite of all the mistakes due to his past arrogance, the king had a right to make use of such language. In their short-sighted resentment, the allies had overstepped reason. The young king of Spain felt this when he wrote to his grandfather, quote, I am transfixed at the chimerical and insolent pretensions of the English and Dutch regarding the preliminaries of peace. Never were seen the like. I am beside myself at the idea that anybody could have so much as supposed that I should be forced to leave Spain as long as I have a drop of blood in my veins. I will use all my efforts to maintain myself upon a throne on which God has placed me, and on which you, after him, have set me, and nothing but death shall wrench me from it, or make me yield it. War recommenced on all sides. The king had just consented at last to give Chamillard his discharge. Quote, Sir, I shall die over the job, End quote. had for a long time been the complaint of the minister worn out with fatigue. Quote, ah, well, we will die together, had been the king's rejoinder. France was dying, and Chamillard was by no means a stranger to the cause. Louis XIV put in his place Voisin, former superintendent of Hainaut, entirely devoted to Madame de Maintenon. He loaded with benefits the minister from whom he was parting, the only one whom he had really loved. The troops were destitute of everything. On assuming the command of the army of the Low Countries, Villars wrote in despair, quote, Imagine the horror of seeing an army without bread. There was none delivered to-day until the evening, and very late. Yesterday, to have bread to serve out to the brigades I had ordered to march, I made those fast that remained behind. On these occasions I pass along the ranks. I coax the soldier, I speak to him in such a way as to make him have patience, and I have had the consolation of hearing several of them say, The marshal is quite right, we must suffer sometimes. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis hodie, or give us this day our daily bread, the men say to me as I go through the ranks. It is a miracle how we subsist, and it is a marvel to see the steadiness and fortitude of the soldier in enduring hunger. Habit is everything. I fancy, however, that the habit of not eating is not easy to acquire. In spite of such privations and sufferings, Villars found the army in excellent spirits, and urged the king to permit him to give battle. Quote, Monsieur de Turenne used to say that he who means to altogether avoid battle gives up his country to him who appears to seek it the marshal assured him. The king was afraid of losing his last army. The dukes of Harcourt and Berwick were covering the Rhine and the Alps. Marlborough and Prince Eugène, who had just made themselves master of Tournay, marched against Villars, whom they encountered on the 11th of September, 1709, near the hamlet of Malplaquet. Marshal Boufflet had just reached the army to serve as a volunteer. Villars had entrenched himself in front of the woods. His men were so anxious to get under fire that they threw away the rations of bread just served out. The Allies looked sulkily at the works. Quote, we are going to fight moles again, they said. There was a thick fog, as at Lutzen. The fighting went on from seven in the morning till midday. Villars had yielded the right wing, by way of respect, to Boufflet as his senior, says the Allies' account, but the general command nevertheless devolved entirely upon him. Quote, 
at the hottest of the engagement, the marshal galloped furiously to the centre attacked by Prince Eugène. It was a sort of jaws of hell, a pit of fire, sulphur and saltpetre, which it seemed impossible to approach and live. One shot and my horse fell, says Villars. I jumped up and a second broke my knee. I had it bandaged on the spot, and myself placed in a chair to continue giving my orders but the pain caused a fainting fit which lasted long enough for me to be carried off without consciousness to Quinoa. The Prince of Hesse, with the Imperial Cavalry, had just turned the entrenchments, which the Dutch infantry had attacked to no purpose. Marshal Boufflet was obliged to order a retreat, which was executed as on parade. Quote, the Allies had lost more than twenty thousand men, quote, according to their official count. Quote, it was too much for this victory, which did not entail the advantage of entirely defeating the enemy, and the whole fruits of which were to end with the taking of Mons. Always a braggart, in spite of his real courage and indisputable military talent, Villars wrote from his bed to the king, on sending him the flags taken from the enemy, quote, If God give us grace to lose such another battle, your majesty may reckon that your enemies are annihilated. Boufflet was more proud, and at the same time more modest, when he said, quote, the series of disasters that have for some years past befallen your majesty's arms had so humiliated the french nation that one scarcer dared avow oneself a frenchman i dare assure you sir that the french name was never in so great esteem and was never perhaps more feared than it is at present in the army of the allies louis the fourteenth was no longer in a position to delude himself and to celebrate a defeat even a glorious one as a victory negotiations recommenced Heinzius had held to his last proposals. It was on this sorry basis that Marshal Duxel and Abbé de Polignac began the parleys at Gertreudenberg, a small fortress of Mardic. They lasted from March 9 to July 25, 1710. The king consented to give some fortresses as guarantee, and promised to recommend his grandson to abdicate. In case of refusal, he engaged not only to support him no longer, but to furnish the allies into the bargain with a monthly subsidy of a million, whilst granting a passage through French territory. He accepted the cession of Alsace to Lothringen, the return of the three bishoprics to the empire. The Hollanders, commissioned to negotiate in the name of the coalition, were not yet satisfied. Quote, the desire of the Allies, they said, is that the king should undertake, himself alone and by his own forces, either to persuade or to oblige the king of Spain to give up all his monarchy. Neither money nor the cooperation of the French troops suit their purpose. If the preliminary articles be not complied with in the space of two months, the truce is broken off. War will recommence, even though on the part of the king the other conditions should have been wholly fulfilled. The sole means of obtaining peace is to receive from the king's hands Spain and the Indies. The French plenipotentiaries had been recommended to have patience. Marshal Duxel was a courtier as smooth as he was clever. Abbe de Polignac was shrewd and supple, yet he could not contain his indignation. Quote, it is evident that you have not been accustomed to conquer, said he haughtily to the Dutch delegates. When the Allies' ultimatum reached the king, the pride of the sovereign and the affection of the father rose up at last in revolt. Quote, Since war there must be, said he, I would rather wage it against my enemies than against my grandson. And he withdrew all the concessions which had reduced Philip V to despair. The Allies had already invaded Artois. At the end of the campaign they were masters of Douai, Saint-Venant, Bethune, and Aire. France was threatened everywhere. The king could no longer protect the king of Spain he confined himself to sending him Vendôme. Philip V, sustained by the indomitable courage of his young wife, refused absolutely to abdicate. Quote, 
whatever misfortunes may await me he wrote to the king i still prefer the course of submission to whatever it may please god to decide for me by fighting to that of deciding for myself by consenting to an arrangement which would force me to abandon the people on whom my reverses have hitherto produced no other effect than to increase their zeal and affection for me it was therefore with none but the forces of Spain that Philip V, at the outset of the campaign of 1710, found himself confronting the English and Portuguese armies. The Emperor Joseph, brother of Archduke Charles, had sent him a body of troops commanded by a distinguished general, Count von Starenberg. Going from defeat to defeat, the young king found himself forced, as in 1706, to abandon his capital. He removed the seat of government to Valladolid, and departed, accompanied by more than thirty thousand persons of every rank, resolved to share his fortunes. The Archduke entered Madrid, quote, I have orders from Queen Anne and the Allies to escort King Charles to Madrid, said the English general, Lord Stanhope. When he is once there, God or the devil keep him in or turn him out. It matters little to me. That is no affair of mine. End quote. Stanhope was in the right not to pledge himself. The hostility of the population of Madrid did not permit the Archduke to reside there long. After running the risk of being carried off in his palace on the Prado, he removed to Toledo. Vendome blocked the road against the Portuguese. The Archduke left the town and withdrew into Catalonia. Starenberg followed him on the 22nd of November, harassed on his march by the Spanish guerrillas rising everywhere upon his route. Every straggler, every wounded man, was infallibly murdered by the peasants. Stanhope, who commanded the rear guard, found himself invested by Vendôme in the town of Bruyuega. The Spaniards scarcely gave the artillery time to open a breach, the town was taken by assault, and the English made prisoners. Starenberg retraced his steps. On the 10th of December, fighting began near Villa Viciosa. The advantage was for a long time undecided and disputed. Night came. The Austrian general spiked his guns and retreated by forced marches. The Spaniards bivouacked on the battlefield. The king slept on a bed made of the enemy's flags. The Allies had taken refuge in Catalonia. Spain had won back her independence and her king. There was great joy at Versailles, greater than in the kingdom. The sole aspiration was for peace." The unexpected assistance was at hand. Queen Anne, wearied with the cupidity and haughtiness of the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough, had given them notice to quit. The friends of the Duke had shared his fall, and the Tories succeeded the Whigs in power. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Harley, soon afterwards Earl of Oxford, and the Secretary of State, St. John, who became Lord Bolingbroke, were inclined to peace. Advances were made to France. A French priest, Abbe Gautier, living in obscurity in England, arrived in Paris during January 1711. He went to see M. de Torcy at Versailles. Quote, Do you want peace? said he. I have come to bring you the means of treating for it, and concluding independently of the Hollanders, unworthy of the king's kindnesses, and of the honour he has so often done them, of applying to them to pacificate Europe. Quote, to ask just then one of His Majesty's ministers if he desired peace, says Torcy, was to ask a sick man suffering from a long and dangerous disease if he wants to be cured. End quote. Negotiations were secretly opened with the English cabinet. The Emperor Joseph had just died, April 17, 1711. He left none but daughters. From that moment Archduke Charles inherited the domains of the House of Austria, and aspired to the imperial crown. By giving him Spain, Europe re-established the monarchy of Charles V. She saw the dangers into which she was being drawn by the resentments or short-sighted ambition of the triumvirate. She fell back upon the wise projects of William III. Holland had abandoned them. To England fell the honour of making them triumphant. She has often made war upon the continent with indomitable obstinacy and perseverance, but at bottom and by the very force of circumstances England remains, as regards the affairs of Europe, an essentially pacific power. She cannot pretend to any territorial aggrandizement in Europe. 
it is the equilibrium between the continental powers that makes her strength and her first interest was always to maintain it End of section fifty four